0: To the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we're continuing our series in Luke, and um, I don't know what part. This is Luke 20, part 20 or something, but we're in chapter 9 of Luke, so if you want to turn there, you can put your finger there, and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll come uh, to it eventually. I grew up on a um, crowded row of houses in Malaysia. They were called terrace houses, and if you've lived overseas, or maybe there's parts of, of uh, America that are like this, but it's these concrete houses, brick houses, but they're all sort of connected, and so uh, there's this wall that kind of goes out from beyond the house, and and then the wall kind of gives way to this fence, and then a fence all the way down, and there's gates. And this is sort of uh, most people's house back there. It's not that it was a, uh, a dangerous neighborhood or anything like that. It just That's just how it was. But uh, the result of that is you can sort of peek over the fence at any time that you're in the driveway and see your neighbors coming in and out, and uh, it can be loads of fun or kind of creepy. But um, I remember I-, I would walk up and down the street, and toward the end of uh, my street, was this gas station that, um, you know, as a kid, my sister and I would often walk and go get stuff and come back home or, you know, just, just get a snack or something like that. And um, often, you can, as you walk by these houses, you can see things on the outside of the houses that sort of display very ob- in, in very obvious ways what their religious beliefs are. So if there's, it's a Buddhist home, you'd see uh, kind of this red little altar with some jostics burning and, 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 and incense, and you, you, you could that was sort of the giveaway. Or if you were uh, maybe walking by another house and, and um, uh, someone was in the, the garden or the yard with a head covering, you'd, you'd understand, okay, this is a, a Muslim family. Or, or And so we had, you know, all of that. And, and, and then there were Hindus on our street, and many of the friends that I went to school with, of course, were all different religions. In Malaysia, Christians are only about 11% of the population. So you get to. Uh, mingle and interact uh, with people of all religions and, all, and, uh, and different persuasions that, they re- that are very deeply held. My father actually came from a, a Hindu family, and when he was growing up, that's the way that they were raised. In fact, his dad, who I never had the chance to meet because he passed away before, um, right before my parents' wedding, actually, uh, his father was a, uh, a sort of an official or volunteer priest, however that works exactly, at the local Hindu temple. And so my dad was, was uh, the second youngest out of, jeez, six kids, right? Seven? Seven kids? Five? Yeah. Um, they were spread out in age. So, and, and I'll tell you in a moment why uh, it sounds funny. How, don't you know how many aunts and uncles you have? Well, here's the thing, is many of them remained Hindus and my dad did not. My dad converted uh, right when he and my mom were about to get married. And so part of the result of that conversion was this, this estrangement from his siblings. And so while my mom's side were believers, and they were raised as Anglicans, you know, thanks in, in great part to the British, um, you know, colonial days, long God save the queen. And, um, and, and so, so her family, we, we were very, very close to, but we didn't keep in touch very much with my, my dad's side, and not necessarily by our choice, but just because of uh, some of their choices, and, and it made things a little bit difficult. But you know, trying to talk to a Hindu about Jesus is very interesting, because uh, it's not as if, it's not like, um, uh, I don't know, say witnessing to someone who's, who believes in one God or doesn't believe in God. I realize a lot of our evangelism conversations in America are dealing with people who don't believe in, in anything. Or, or you know, And you, so you sort of are starting from zero and saying, okay, maybe there's a God and how did this world, you know, all this stuff. Well, it's very different when you're talking to a Hindu because you could tell him. I had many conversations with friends uh, that would go something like this. So I believe that Jesus... Is God, and they would say, Yeah, me too. But I also believe that Krishna is God, and so is, you know, and they would go on naming down the list because for a Hindu, the, uh, the, the issue is not, Is there a God? but, Yeah, there's millions of them. And so sort of take your pick, and it doesn't really matter. And if, if, if it's convenient to add Jesus to it, let's go ahead and add Jesus to it. And the most difficult thing about when a Hindu really converts is to the, the point when they realize that, hey, listen, by the way, following Jesus. Uh, means disavowing these other deities that you've come to regard. And that was very hard because it was attached to, well, what if I offend my parents and I don't want to offend my And this was a big deal for my dad, you can imagine. Uh, when his father passed away very suddenly, before, his wedding, before my dad's wedding to, to my mom uh, and, and after his conversion, guess what his older siblings told him was the reason dad died? You broke his heart. You, yeah, you sold yeah, all this stuff. And so there's tremendous relational investment. And so it's much more convenient to say, y'all go to church, yeah, sure, I believe in Jesus. And then secretly when you're somewhere else to go and also acknowledge this God and this God and this God. Well, as I've been thinking about this, it's not really all that different here in America. Because we tell people about Jesus as God and we say that he's the son of God. So, yeah, I believe in him. But we're not really um, challenged... To understand that following Jesus means disavowing all of our previous loyalties. That's uncomfortable language, because we'd much rather say, look, you can follow Jesus, but don't worry, not much else has to change. Pray this magic prayer, and wow, voila, you're guaranteed admission. And the, this is, this is the, the trouble with framing the gospel in terms of just heaven and hell. If it's just about who gets in and who, do, who avoids hell and who gets into heaven, then all it's about then is a prayer and if the prayer will do the trick or not. And so even the debate about faith versus works and what really is required for salvation is a funny debate because it's really framed through this lens of what do I got to do to avoid the flames? But Jesus didn't talk like that. When Jesus talks to His disciples about what it means, what this new decision means to follow Him, He's introducing them to an idea, a notion that would have been very, very disturbing. This is the text tonight in Luke 9. Luke 9, and we'll start, I, I believe, with verse 18. Let's look there here. Oh, or, yeah, there we go. Okay, once when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. And by the way, just earlier, if you'd read, uh, you know, sort of skim, even parts of Luke 9, just earlier, Herod is kind of afraid because John the Baptist has been beheaded by now. And Herod's sort of afraid, okay, is Jesus like John the Baptist come back from the dead? And so there's this little whisper going among the people that this Jesus is this great prophet guy. Maybe he's John come back from the dead for all we know. And others say, Elijah, and still others say that one of the prophets of long ago has risen. It's this second coming of one of the great ones. And then he said to them, all right, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, or if we would, to to hear this maybe with the Hebrew language, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that God has chosen and anointed, the one that we've been waiting for. 4. We've been conditioned as evangelicals to read the Gospels uh, looking for proofs or, or ways that Jesus demonstrates that He's God, and, and there's some of that there, but really what the Gospel writers are more concerned with, and this is not to say that they didn't believe He was God, this is just to say the, perp- the focus of their storytelling was about how Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, And so, so many of the stories that Luke has told us are stories that come with bells and whistles, alarms sort of ringing, saying, beep, 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 Messiah alert, Messiah alert. This is a clue. And so, even just before this, there's this feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 is, again, like so many of the miracles, I find myself saying this every time we talk through uh, uh, one of the miracles here in Luke, but like so many of these miracles... The feeding of the 5,000 is not Jesus dazzling his friends at a party, you know. Hey guys, watch this. It's a very specific, very deliberate, rather, messianic act. It's this act of saying, look, here I am. And why is it that? Well, see, there's these prophecies in Isaiah of God saying, look, I'll prepare a great banquet table for the masses. Look, I'm going to feed the hungry. All of this stuff. And so when Jesus does it, he knows what he's doing. He's... Filling out the job description he's saying look I, I know what isaiah said and i am he so i'm doing these specific things on purpose i'm not i'm fulfilling these prophecies but i'm giving you signs pointers uh, alerts saying, look i'm the one and so when peter says not jesus i think we've been with you long enough i think we get it you're not john the baptist come back from the dead you're not elijah reincarnate you know no you you're the messiah I get it, and you have to wonder if peter's saying this with maybe that that feeling of you know ninety eight percent excited, two percent scared or is it ninety eight percent scared and two percent you know just sort of this oh jesus I'm going to go out on a limb here, you're the messiah, is it true? Am I right? and jesus in the other one of the other gospels accounts you have the the longer scene of this where matthew I think says yeah, okay, that's right, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father, you got it right. And then Jesus says, okay. He forcefully commanded them not to tell this to anyone. All right, right here is a bit puzzling because what well, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like tell people he's the Messiah. Come on. Jesus is well aware of how delicate. The political situation is right now. He knows how nervous Herod is. And in case we'd forgotten, Luke just reminded us again in this chapter, chapter 9, with this nervousness of Herod's story. And Jesus says, okay, look, don't tell anyone. Don't blow this, okay? There's a time. There's an order. There's a sequence. Feeding the 5,000 is not the only prophecy I'm fulfilling here. There's a bunch more that's going to happen, but don't go ahead of me. And then he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now this is interesting because we've got this claim of Messiahship. We've got Jesus saying, okay, that's true. But now let me tell you what that means for me. It's one thing to say that Jesus is the long-awaited promised one, But if we're going to really unpack this, tell us what that means for you, Jesus. And Jesus, for the first time in Luke's gospel, predicts his own suffering and death and resurrection. And says, all right, I'll tell you what it means for me. It means I'm going to die. Whoa! And as if the shock and the stun was not enough, Jesus goes on and says, In case you're wondering, let me tell you what it's going to mean for you. Uh Uh-oh. And then he said to them all, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you most certainly, there are some who are standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. It's very difficult for us to imagine cross language in the, way, in the horrifying way that that language would have sounded to people in, that heard it, those words. Because when I say cross, we think, thank you, Jesus. But when they heard cross, they thought, the terrorizing, cruel death that the tyrant uses to keep power. I don't mean to be gr- gruesome with this, but maybe the corollary visual is the visual of that stuff that you see on internet videos from certain networks where there's a bag over a person's head and they're tied up. There's people with guns pointed at them. You're thinking, oh, the cruel, terrifying, terrorizing way of killing people. And so Jesus says, you're right, I'm the Messiah. And I'm going to a cross. Whoa! What? What? Imagine the one who was supposed to overthrow wicked and evil rulers saying that he was going to instead suffer the very death that those wicked and evil rulers use as a weapon against their people. Death is the weapon of the tyrant. And Jesus is saying, yep, and it's going to happen to me. And that would have been troubling enough if he had stopped there, but he doesn't. And he says, and it's going to happen to you. Now, this is deeply, deeply troubling. Because if you've ever had expectations of a hero to come and overthrow or save or end, and I suspect you have, then it's troubling to have a hero or a leader reveal himself and then say, yeah, they're going to get me. And they're going to get you too. What? <laughs> Excuse me? I will rise again. And they're puzzled about this. Jesus, in a, in a way, is saying, in a very real way, he's saying, look, I am moving in an opposite way than the world and its powers. I am moving in a way that is totally different then the world that you know, the world as you know it with its powers, the world as you know it operates with power and control and death and violence as their weapon. But I'm moving in a totally different way. I'm moving in this way of giving up my life to them. And in giving my life up, I will overthrow them. And we understand the victory of it because we understand resurrection. But it's still makes the way of Jesus very, very puzzling. I want to fight the world, but I so often want to fight them the way they fight me. And Jesus is saying, I'm moving in an opposite way than the world and its powers, and I'm calling you to follow me in this way. This text gives us at least two questions that all of us have to wrestle with. The first is, what we are going to do with jesus or who do you think jesus is who is this jesus probably for many of us in this room we've we've kind of i I think we sort of get that okay yeah no i know you know you're god you're man you're fully human fully god we say this creed each week to help us in in shaping the way we think about who jesus is but really this is a huge question because he's so often a mascot for our team and Jesus becomes the slogan that we slap on a sticker or a t-shirt and mm. we really don't treat him any differently than we treat a team's mascot, you know? He might as well be Rocky at the Nuggets game or you know a guy who that we could slap on to our cause and our agendas. Instead of the Lord that calls us to follow him in his strange, peculiar way. Once we answer this question, the second one comes right on its heels. What does it mean to follow him? Who do you think he is? And what does it mean to follow him? I am so guilty of saying, okay, yeah, yeah, well, I got it. I think, I think you're God. I think you're awesome. I think you're pretty neat. And so I'll clap my hands and move my feet. But what does it mean to follow? To really be part of this? To really live in this way? Pastor Brady this morning used a phrase that, that, that Eugene Peterson titled one of his books with. It's actually a phrase that he stole from that German philosopher Nietzsche, which is ironic because Nietzsche used that same philosopher who said, God is dead. But this phrase is a a good phrase. Nietzsche used it to sort of define faithfulness. Eugene Peterson uses it to describe discipleship. And the phrase is, a long obedience in the same direction. What does it mean to follow Jesus? A long obedience in the same direction. Now what direction is Jesus going? Is he going with the world? All of us that grew up in church would say, no. And if I were to say, we are here to move against the world, we'd all say, amen, brother. Preach it. I am not watching those movies. And and that's all part of it. But there's something very, very profound about this direction that Jesus is going. For one, it's a direction that moves us out of the crowds. It sets us in a place where we're more with the few than we are with the many. Let's say it that way. It's a direction that sets us more with the few than with the many. That's difficult. I, when I get into something, I like to have as many people as possible join me in it. You know, like it's just if I'm enjoying something, like man, you should do this too. Come on, let's all, you know. And, uh, you know, it's just, everything's more fun when, when a few of us are, are involved in it together, you know, and so, and there's certainly this camarader- camaraderie when we gather as church, but it's very difficult when you're out there in the world, and you find yourself among the few. This, um, this has been quite a week for us. For one, on Wednesday night, Holly and I brought home a little puppy and uh, we've, we, we, you know, we, it wasn't sudden or impulsive, though we, yeah, anyway, it feels like it at points. Um, we, it's a little, you know, golden retriever puppy. She's nine weeks old or, old or so, and, you know, a handful of days old in our home. And day two was like, I think every day, Holly has said at some point, let's get rid of this puppy, <laughs> you know. Like, this is too hard. And it's true, it is hard. And I'm, you know, getting up at 6 in the morning, and it's just funny, because dogs are supposed to follow you, and she does, but when I'm waking up at 6 in the morning because she needs to get out of her kennel and go outside, I have the strange feeling that I'm following her. But in addition to that, that's my phone, in addition to the puppy this week, um, yeah, tell him I'm busy, if you wouldn't (laughs) mind. (laughs) Uh, sorry. I didn't turn it off. Um, th- in addition to that, I got called in for jury duty on Thursday morning. And, uh, you know, I, many of you noticed I just became a citizen last year. And so, I, like most of us who get the jury summons, you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to show up. They'll, they won't call my number. Well, they called my number. And uh, so then you go in. How many of you have done it, like served on jury? Okay. So, so, you know, you get into the room and then there's 12 that are in the box and then there's like 20 others that are in, like the alternates or whatever, or 30 others, I don't know exactly how many. I was in the box from the get-go, so I knew, I am not getting out of this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they go through, they, they kind of, you know, ask these different questions the attorneys are, do and, and trying to get rid of the ones that they think, you know. And so on my sheet, you know, I told them I'm a pastor and my faith is important to me and all this stuff. And I thought, for sure... They're going to, you know, yank me. They didn't. And so, you know, they're pulling others, pulling others, pulling others. And, and the judge says, okay, th- 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 that's it. So you guys are it. And I'm thinking, here we go. And um, and I ended up having a, a great time. And it is one of the great uh, privileges of our citizenship. And it's a, it's a wonderful testimony to the way our, our country has set up different things. And, uh, and and it, it, you know, I, I I could go into details of the case, but it's really irrelevant. The point I was there all the, all the day Thursday and half the day Friday, and, and most of Friday morning was in the deliberation room with the jury. And um, for one, I, I felt like the outsider for a number of reasons. You know, for one, I, I was the racial minority, but I'm used to that. But there were only I was one of only two guys and ten women. And um, and you're not supposed to do this, but the four per- the foreman who was elected. Uh, asked everyone to just sort of say just share some initial thoughts and we were warned against doing an initial vote you know because that really skews things well the the other people just couldn't resist giving their opinion right away and so what do you think turned into she said this and then when another woman who would say something the other one would say yeah but and shoot down her by the time we got done everybody knew what where they wanted to vote except me And I'm trying to be faithful to the law. And I'm like, okay, what does reasonable doubt mean? And what is this? You know, I'm trying to, come on, guys, let's let's take this seriously. You know, I'm not going off intuition here. You know, I'm trying to be a good citizen. And uh, when we did finally a couple hours into this, we do this. uh, There's nine people who are going one way and there's three going the other way. And I'm one of the three. I'm used to winning arguments. (laughs) I had given two hours of my come on, guys, let's think clearly about this and this, you know. And, and after a while, I just thought, maybe I'm the fool here, you know. And and I I don't regret the way of, obviously, the juries to come to a unanimous decision, and we did, and it wasn't the one that I thought I was leaning towards. And I, I don't regret, you know, I don't regret. It's, it's not like I was talked into this or, or whatever. But I will say this, it is difficult to continually go against the grain. It's difficult to, to keep raising questions that someone may not want to consider. It's difficult to keep doing that. And this is this thing is following Jesus in this direction in a much larger way means being willing to be among the few. It means being willing to say, to know that you're going to raise questions that others will dismiss. That you're going to have a perspective that others will just disregard. It also means though, and this is why I think Jesus follows it up with this whole thing about uh, gaining the world versus loo- losing your soul and this giving giving away and letting go. I think this direction that Jesus is going is also a direction that speaks of giving and not gaining. It, it's a direction that, that says, rather than thinking about gain, think, think about giving. Now, this weekend and next weekend, New Life is hosting this thing on our parking lot and our our team a lot of our pastors have been involved and volunteers have been involved in, in making this happen uh, called freely give freely receive anybody participate in this on saturday you come and you give give stuff you know you bring your stuff uh food items all this stuff some of it uh, is going to, on a truck that's going down to alabama to help you know tur- uh, the, the tornado survivors and, and the situation there uh the biggest need is is non-perishable food items a food bank in our city where, where they could deal with one box, uh, it could last a quarter. Now it can only last a month. And so they need not... So Saturday, this, yesterday and this upcoming Saturday is the day in the afternoon hours to come and drop off all this stuff. So they'll organize it. And then Sunday, there's this window, and Sunday afternoon is the time to come and receive. And so chances are there are many of us that will, will be able to participate in those different ways. But this is a sort of uh, direction that is strange. That is abnormal because everything, every day, screams out to us, y- you need this. Y- you need that. Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, wrote in the, in the early 1900s of the lordless powers that don't really have this one single mastermind and yet they control so many of us. Do you know the two that, that Bart names? Fashion and sport. Come on, Carl, like, let's talk about like greed and fashion. And I, it was just, it, it was really, I was listening to this yesterday and thinking, this is really interesting. The lordless power of fashion that tells us this is what you need, and you, that's not good enough, you need to sell that, and you need to get this, or, or not sell that, you need to buy this, and you need to, you know. and how do we move in a different way than this? What does it mean to say, you know what, I, well, yeah, I have that, take it, get it. It's yours to lay down our lives. But you know, I think if there's one theme that is strong in Jesus' words to his disciples, it's this notion, this idea, this truth that following him means setting aside self-preservation ways of thinking and being willing to embrace risk. To say, okay, I'll, I'll go, yeah, let, let, let's go that way. And maybe if we were to sum it up, we would say, growing as followers of Jesus is about learning to move in the opposite direction of the world. Okay, good. But when you move in the opposite direction of the world, guess what? You will be opposed by it. I've said this a few times here on a Sunday night, but I, I think it's a worthy question to ask ourselves If we don't feel opposition from the world, perhaps we are not moving in opposition to it. If we don't feel the press of swimming upstream, maybe it's because we're not. And I think this is challenging because when people talk about, uh, this is just my cross to bear, you ever heard people say, oh, yeah, it's just my cross to bear, A lot of times people use that phrase, and they're talking just about suffering in general, but I think to be precise, we have to say that the New Testament highlights at least two different kinds of suffering. One is suffering that comes from living in a fallen world, but the other is a suffering that comes from living against a fallen world. Does that make sense? Some of it is like, yeah, you know, there's sickness, there's whatever decisions, those are just, yes, we live in this fallen world. We're not in control. But that's not the cross Jesus is talking about. See, what I think this text has been abused to to sort of paint Jesus as if he was some sort of masochist where he just loved suffering and he gloried in pain. No, he didn't. The verse that we read in Isaiah, that this, this prophetic passage about Jesus, it shows us a Jesus who is so fixed on a purpose that he's going there no matter what comes against him. I love Dr. Steve, Dr. Stephen Todd's message last Sunday night about Jesus saying, look, I'm going to the other side of the lake because this is what I'm going to do. And yes, there's a storm coming against me. And yes, there's this and yes, this, but you know what? I'm going there. There is a kind of suffering that's not the result of living, just living in a fallen world, but that's the result of us saying, Jesus is going that way, and I have determined to go that way with him, and because I am, this is the result. I may not get as many clients. I may not be able to make as much money as I had hoped. In my mind, I'm thinking about two or three different business scenarios of some friends of mine that are being raked over the coals by other businesses who are Christians, who've somehow found a way to separate following Jesus from how you do business. That if it's about more profit and if it's about making it work, then it's okay, right? Or does living... The opposite direction of the world mean that you're not gonna win some things. That's difficult. (coughs) That's difficult because I want following Jesus to mean that I'm the head and not the tail blessed and not cursed. And all of that's true. But It just doesn't look like the way the world thinks it looks. In a world gone mad with violence and revenge, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. In a world convinced that you've got the right to fight power with power and fight violence with violence, Jesus says, no man takes my life. I lay it down. In a world that tells us that you've got to get yours before someone else does, Jesus says, Last shall be first. First shall be last. How can we really live this way? It's impossible. It is impossible. Good night. No, I'm just kidding. I love this. There's this letter that Martin Luther wrote his dear friend Melanchthon. And he was talking with him about all these different issues that they were facing from whether priests can marry and all this stuff. And, and, you know, Luther, of course, was quite intent in, in many ways of living against a certain way and a certain system. And he says this thing about our life in this way. That there's no way to fully disentangle our, ourselves from the systems of this world. I, I mean, I've got clothes on that I bought that are not 20 years old or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're all sort of entangled with this. What do we. Ah. And Luther, in his letter, said, Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Again, not a great place to stop and say goodnight. And there's a comma there. But let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here, but this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. Now this is not N.T. Wright. This is Martin Luther. He's talking about a new heaven and a new earth in the 1500s. Where did that go? Why is our vision of justice Not as clear as his. Why do we think that, well, we can live however the heck we want to here as long as we confess Jesus as Lord and one day we'll fly away and he'll take us home. Luther's vision was much different. He says, look, because there's a day where justice will fully be done in new heaven and new earth, we can live this out the best we can, but trust that Christ's forgiveness and victory is stronger. Will you fully live in in the opposite direction of the world? Let me tell you, no, you won't. We can't. Because it's not as if, I think, when we think about opposite ways, it's like everything's this way and then we go this way. But you know what? I, I wonder if it's more like being in a snow globe, you know? And some of it's moving this way and you're trying to move this way and then, whoa! It just, you know? It's just, it's not li- as easy as, un- it's not the, the vision is not traffic flow. It's like being in a world that's... And you're saying, oh, Lord, what does it mean to follow you, Jesus, Here? This, that. And this is why I have no step one, step two for you tonight. I can't say to you, okay, so everybody, you know, don't do this and start doing this. But what I want to say to you is, take it seriously that following Jesus means living against the flow of the world. And accept the fact that even when you do it well, they will hate you. I was talking earlier with Randy Wilson. You remember several months ago that we had a little camera thing in here and because Randy has has had this father-daughter ball for how many years, Randy? Twelve years. And this was potentially maybe the last year that they did it, and I went and took our girls to it. It was a great event. It's not like the caricatures that you sometimes see about events like this. And there was this media crew from Australia that did a story on it, and they turned it into a story about uh, purity balls in general, and they sort of lumped in, you know, what the Wilsons do with what others do, and and, and and they did their best to take words and put it in different settings and to make it look silly. I am so proud of Randy and Lisa and, and, and Jordan and the kids and how they talked to these people and said in a very kind and clear way, why they were doing this, and it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and, but it does mean this, and they're just very articulate. Nobody patted them on the back after that. Nobody said, wow, that is, that is awesome. So you're teaching young girls to know that they're loved. What a great thing. Nope. They wanted to find a way to twist it and smit. Can I say this? We keep waiting for the day for the world to congratulate the church. It's not coming. We keep waiting for the day when America will praise Christian values. Can I tell you that the nature of Christian values, whatever those are, is that they don't make sense without the Christian narrative. And if they do, you should rethink whether or not they are Christian. Christian ethics, Christian values do not make sense without the Christian narrative and without the Christian colony. It doesn't make sense. It should be strange to everyone else. It should be odd. It should be. You might even say that a sign of trying to persuade people of the goodness of our choices and the goodness of our virtues might be a sign that we've lost faith in the church being the church. But what if we could really be a people that lived like this? What if the things that we did with the needs board and Lent, all this, what if that was just like priming the pump for us to say, yeah, I'll take a risk to really meet someone else's need. Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's think of stuff we can all show up next Saturday afternoon and give away. What if what could we do this could we be a colony whose king is Jesus that refuses to flow with the grain of culture even though there's some good in it because you stop waiting for them to pat you on the back it's not coming a cross is coming but after the cross there's resurrection Jesus says, some of you here will not die until you see the kingdom come. Do you know what he was talking about? He was talking about his own resurrection and ascension, the kingdom of God breaking in. All of us are here 2,000 years after Jesus said that. Guess what? It has broken in. It is here. It's like that first light of dawn, which I've seen now the last couple of mornings, thanks to my pup, (laughs) that tells you a new day is here. The world is convinced it's still time to sleep, but you know it's time to rise up. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did it. You didn't just tell us to do it, but you did it. You went to the cross. You went against this grain. You moved in an opposite way. And you died and you rose. And so there's forgiveness for all of us. We're not trying to live this way to impress you or please you or earn our way with you. We need your spirit. May the Holy Spirit fill each one of us tonight in a fresh way to give us a clear vision of Jesus, to help us see Jesus as we go to work tomorrow, to help us see Jesus as we stay at home tomorrow, to help us see Jesus as we interact with people this week so that we may follow Him, not in a way of power or control, but in a way of love, sacrifice, make us even us as New Life Church even us as New Life Church Sunday night make us a little people that live in a different way in Jesus name amen God bless you happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are in here have a great rest of your evening good night